Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual journey and look forward to helping you discover God's plan for your life. To find more messages like this, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast feeds. To stay connected with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the handle CCGF01 and check out our website, ccgf.org, for all of this information and more. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. Let us pray. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, Father, I pray you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart that is willing to obey and discern your truth. As we discover, God, what you are talking about in your kingdom, may we in our lives see that happen. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, God, it's this time by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Well, I've uh, been here on a couple other occasions and uh, mentioned the fact that I grew up in New England. I'm not going to make Patriot reference this year of me being a fan because what I found out is nobody cares anymore now that we're losing and we lost Tom Brady. So uh, I'm not going to make reference to that. But uh, growing up, although I just did make reference, so take that back. Okay, so growing up, um, my parents had a cottage up in New Hampshire on Lake Winnipesaukee. It's a beautiful lake up near the White Mountains. And, uh, and this cottage was on a Christian campground. And it was the, the, the denomination is called the Advent Christian Denomination. Now, what's unique about Advent Christians is they have a, a unique focus uh, on the second coming, on the second advent of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go on their denominational website, it says that they are a, quote, network of churches propelled by a sure hope that Christ will return soon, maybe today. So the Advent Christian denomination began out of the teachings of a Baptist preacher named William Miller. In the early 1800s, Miller began studying the, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and, and studying a lot about prophecy, and he believed that the return of Christ was imminent. And so in 1831, he predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. And all these people started following him. And he had thousands of followers who, who sold their possessions, who began giving themselves wholly to the mission of evangelism and discipleship. Well, as you can imagine, 1844 came and went, and these people were gravely disappointed However, that legacy still lived on. And nearly 20 years later, that very campground that I grew up in, this became something of a thing again. They, they, they had a, a revival, the first revival happening in 1867, where tens of thousands of people would travel up from lower New England by rail. They bought four acres of land through the Boston and Maine Rail Company. They leased this land, and they would gather thousands of people in tents surrounding this kind of pine grove. See, this pine grove where they gather, where they would preach about the second coming of Jesus Christ. They have these services to be eight days long. And they did this year after year. They said in 1872, more than 35,000 people were there proclaiming that Jesus' return was imminent. Now, as you can imagine, 150 years later, they're still waiting. Jesus has not indeed returned yet, and at the beginning, when they, were, when they were doing this, they said, listen, we're only going to live in tents. We're not going to build any buildings or any cottages, because literally by the time we finish constructing, Jesus will be here, okay? Well, in time, they kind of backed off of that a little bit, and they said, okay, you know what? 
we, you can build some buildings, you can build some cottages, but we're not going to waste any money on paint. Because by the paint, by the time the paint dries, Jesus will be here. And we don't want to waste money on that. Well, now, 150 years later, the campground's still there. It's much more of a family retreat center now. There are many modern buildings. There are many cottages. Everything's modernized with paint. All of it is there. And that whole idea of Advent Christian has somewhat dissipated over the years. There's not a, a strong preaching and leaning towards that imminent return of Christ. Many have been disillusioned, maybe disappointed. Now, in 2006, the Pew Research team basically did a survey, and they asked Christians. And they said, how many Christians believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? 79% of Christians said they believe in the second coming. But only 20%, only one in five, believe that it would happen in their lifetime. Now, that survey was done in 2006. I searched desperately to find a more recent survey and couldn't find anything reliable to report. So that means in the last 14 years, either people are so little concerned about this second coming that the statisticians are literally not even asking the question. And do you think as America, as the, even the Christian church, in the last 14 years, have we drawn and grown closer to God or drifted further and further away? If 80% of people back then lived their lives day to day as if Christ was not going to come in their lifetime, how many people today live their lives as if it's not really going to happen. It's almost a little bit of a fairy tale. Christianity is more about me doing good and accepting Jesus, but there's no way that that could happen. And yet, that is the next great event that we're waiting for. In the biblical timeline, you have creation, the fall, and then redemption through the birth, death, resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and the next thing that we as a church are supposed to be waiting for is he said, I'm going to return. We are in these latter days. These are the end times, whether it's tomorrow, next week, or a year from now. And the question I want to ask all of us is, how would we live differently? How would you live different if you knew, if you believed that Jesus was going to return next week, tomorrow, or maybe today? So for the past several weeks, Christ Church has been in this series called The Kingdom. It's like this, and I've enjoyed watching online. I've watched all the services, and, and it's really piqued a lot of my interest about how are we called to live. I, I love the definition Pastor Craig has given us. It's defined as the rule and the reign of God in Christ. And we've been looking at parables, which are essentially these simple stories that illustrate spiritual lessons. Well, today's parable is Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. Now, I think it's pretty ironic that the, the silver ink thing purity guy gets the message about ten virgins, right? Uh, luckily and gratefully, that is not at all the focus of this message, and therefore, I'm not going to try to make it that. I believe that this passage today is a building point. It it's, it's precedes last week's message about the talents, but it has the equal focus, which is... It's a warning and a challenge for all of us to be ready and to be watchful. So to understand Matthew 25, we need a, just a little bit of context. Matthew verses 24 and 25 are, is, a, is a statement, it's a discourse Jesus gave called the Olivet Discourse, which is given to his disciples in response to a question that they asked him. They asked him this question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus starts to unpack that for him. He says, you know what? Many deceivers will come claiming that they are Christ. 
There'll be wars and there'll be rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes, false prophets, persecution, and more. Sound at all like the days we're in today? However, while there are signs of this season, Jesus is also very specific that no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor himself. Only the Father knows the appointed time. Therefore, he says, keep watch and be ready. Keep watch and be ready because you do not know about what day the Lord will come. And he will come when you do not expect him. The Bible says he will come like a thief in the night. And Jesus says, he who is the faithful and wise servant will be rewarded if he is found doing what he has been assigned to do upon his return. So let's turn. If you have your Bibles or on screen, we'll turn to this passage. Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus says, at that time, which means this end time period, the period that we're in now, right before he comes, when he comes, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So these ten virgins are also called maidens or bridesmaids. These are young, unmarried women who are attending to the bride, getting her ready for her upcoming wedding. Now, to understand this whole passage, we really need to understand a little bit more about a traditional Jewish marriage. Okay, it's because it's very different of how we do things today. Back in these Old Testament times, or these biblical times, you had where a, a father had a daughter, and another father has a son. And, this, and they approach one another, and they basically arrange the marriage for them. Now, the daughter was considered property of her family and of her father, because she was useful whether it be around the home or in stewardship or resourceful, whatever it might be. And so a, a, an amount was determined that the father of the groom would pay the father of the bride in order to essentially buy her to marry his son. Now, oftentimes, this man and woman would not, not know each other. They, they may not have ever even met. But when these fathers agree on this, they sign the agreement. It's signed, sealed, delivered. These two are now considered betrothed or engaged to one another. It's why when we look at the story of even Mary and Joseph, how Mary and Joseph, it says that they were betrothed to one another, but they were not yet married because they hadn't consummated that marriage together. Because what would happen is then the daughter would remain with her family, but this groom would go back to his father's home and usually add on to the home. He would prepare a place. He'd build a room that would ultimately be able for his wife and for his family. He would go back. And then he would also offer a gift to his wife. The gift would prove that he is capable, that he is able to ultimately take care of her. And then one day, usually almost a year later, they've been engaged, they've been betrothed. Almost a year later, sometimes more, he would finally one day come for his bride. And when he came there, there were these bridemaids that are attending to her. And those bridesmaids, their job was often he came at night. These weddings typically started at night, getting out of the heat of the day. And they would come, and he would take the bride, and these bridesmaids would have to carry these torches through the village, down the streets, to light the way, because it was a party. A whole village was involved. There was a big celebration when this would happen. And so their job, their little job, was to light the way as they celebrated. Then they would return to the groom's home. They would consummate their marriage, and they would begin to live together. They would come out, and the whole village would celebrate that now they are officially, officially married. So that's what's going on. To break that engaged commitment was almost as if you were getting a divorce. In fact, it was considered a divorce. So this is the context. Now, who do all these different players in this parable represent? 
First, you need to know that the ten virgins in this parable are the visible church. That is the visible church. These are those who profess a faith in Christ and would identify themselves, would call themselves Christians. Now, I say the visible church because the Bible is very clear that there are those within every church who call themselves Christians but do not possess saving faith. Jesus talks about there are sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. In every, in every congregation, there are those who profess the name of Jesus, maybe raise a hand in worship, but don't actually have a relationship with Christ. The virgins are the visible church. The bridegroom is Jesus, okay? That's who he is. Now, Jesus, in many places, we know that the church is considered the bride of Christ. That's what we're called in Ephesians and other passages. But it's weird because in this parable, the bride is never there. We never even hear anything about the bride. So in this particular parable, if this is not some theological teaching for Jesus. He's just trying to illustrate a point. Jesus is the bridegroom. He acts in the exact way that a bridegroom would do. In fact, when we look at John 14, this is what Jesus says. He says, in my house, my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He's doing the same exact thing that this bridegroom would do. And in fact, Jesus paid the price, giving his life on the cross as that gift to us, his bride, that we may have eternal life. So, the bride isn't mentioned. In this case, it is the virgins. So picking up, again, the parable says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. And five were wise. The foolish took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So we have ten bridesmaids, five foolish, five wise. They have a lot of things in common. All are invited to be a part of the marriage ceremony. All are virgins. All are attending to the bride. All brought their lamps. All on the exterior look the same. They all look, they have the visible exterior that they are all the same. Yet there is one unique difference. Only the wise brought any oil. Now in those days, like I said, this, this lamp was more likely a torch. It was more like a longer torch to be held up like a stick. And there's a rag at the top that would be lit to light the way. Okay? So we think of that. What happened is that you would then dip the rag or dip the, the lamp in olive oil in order to cause the flame to burn. You've seen kerosene candles candles and others have those wicks in the same way. So every once in a while, you needed to put oil in the lamp in order to keep it burning because it would only last for a short period. So the wise brought oil, but the foolish didn't. In the Greek, the wise are called phronomos, which means that they are intelligent and they are prudent. They are prepared. But the Greek word for foolish is moros, which means to be heedless, dull, or stupid. It's literally where we get our word moron. So Jesus says five were wise, five were morons. That's what's going on. What does the lamp then represent? The lamp is the word of God. The lamp is the scriptures. It's the word of God. Psalm 119 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs says, Thy commandments are a lamp. So all of them were holding this. All of them could even hold this thing and say, Oh yeah, yeah, I got got my Bible. I'm good. I, I look good. I got it. But one of them did not have any oil. What is the oil? 
Over 200 times in Scripture, we see oil referenced and used. And oftentimes, oil is a metaphor for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Oil was often used in the ritual anointing of prophets, priests, and kings. We see with Samuel, the prophet Samuel came to anoint the young boy David. He anoints him with oil. And it says from that moment, literally right away, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. In Acts, the apostle Peter is talking about Jesus, who we know is called the anointed one. And Peter says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, not every reference in the Bible of the oil is about the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes it is the metaphor for the power and the enablement of the Spirit to operate in the life of a believer. I remember years ago, my dad, you know, my dad was pretty faithful. Uh, almost every morning I would come down and see him reading his Bible. Almost every single morning. And I remember one day, as I got a little bit older, he told me one time, he said, Jason, you know, every morning when I open up my Bible, my first prayer to God is this. Father, unless your spirit speaks to me, unless your spirit reveals truth to me, these are just words on a page. You see, the Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. So understand this, a lamp without oil is like religion without Christ. A lamp without oil is religion without Christ. It's a flashlight without any batteries. It's a car without any gas. For the reader to, to, to read the Scriptures but not have the Spirit transform you on the inside, it's, it's a good moral book. Unless it's transforming us through the power, it's empty religion. It has the outward appearance that things are good, no good, that things are good, but it has no real transformative eternal value. Verse 5 says, The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. See, the bridegroom was delayed. Other translations just say he tarried. There's a gap between their expectation of his coming and the fulfillment of that. And in their waiting... All of them fell asleep, the foolish and the wise. So that's not the problem. But I think that is honestly where we are as the church today. Nearly 2,000 years since Jesus has departed and promised his return, but I think most of us are asleep to that reality. The bridegroom is a long time in coming, and most of his church has fallen asleep. Imagine if, like in the 1870s, what was happening at this campground, if we said, next week, out in the parking lot, we're going to do an eight-day revival. You're going to all come and stay in tents, and we're going to be expecting the return of the Lord imminently. Most people think you lost your mind. Most people go, I'm, I don't go to that. That's weird. And yet, that's the next thing. That's the hope that we have, that Jesus comes back. Oftentimes, we live our faith as it's just doing well, being good, accepting Jesus, and then love others, but not anticipating this next thing. Understand this. God's delay is by design. It's not accidental that we are waiting here for 2,000 years for his return. Second Peter says this. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, the days that we're in, in the last days, scoffers will come 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, here's the point, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God exists out of time. To him, a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. Today, it's as much as the ascension day as it is the advent of the second coming because God exists outside all of this. So while man's life, while we are a vapor, we're a mist that's here today, gone tomorrow, God exists outside of that. He's not being slow by any measure on his timetable. Instead, he is patient, allowing the time of the church to go out and do the work of the kingdom, to go out and to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission we were tasked with when he left. He said, I'm coming back. In the meantime, go and do this. And when I come back, it'll only come when those who I've appointed have received salvation. He delays so the church can be on mission. Now, this passage continues. It says, at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. So at midnight, at the darkest hour, at the time when it seemed that the the bridegroom is not coming at all, he then arrives. So the bridesmaids all jump up. They begin to trim their lamps. What they're doing is they're, they're cutting off the, the charred ends of the rags so that the, the rag may burn brightest. And, the, and so the, the wise do that. They trim the lamps and then they, they pour the oil on it. They light the flame and they go out to meet the bridegroom because they're prepared. They're ready. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But here's the foolish ones. who are sitting there. They're trimming the charred ends off of this thing, but they've got no oil. So they're trying to light this thing and it's just, it lights and just dies out right away because there's no oil. There's nothing to sustain the flame. There's no power. How foolish can they be in this moment? They had one job, one job, and yet they weren't prepared. Now, I remember when um, we have four kids, and so my, when my oldest was born, Isaac, my wife Heidi and I, we went through all the steps we were supposed to take to prepare for the birth of this child. Like, you know, we had everything. We went to the Lamaze classes. I learned how to breathe. Uh, took the vitamins. We decorated the rooms. We picked the names. We went to every single hospital visit. All the stuff we were supposed to do. By the time the fourth kid came, I didn't even know what hospital we were going to. I'm like, what, what's going on? You know, but there was one thing that I forgot. Okay, the first kid, I forgot to pack the hospital bag. You know the hospital bag? The one that they say, okay, pack some clothes, pack some toiletry stuff. This is like your emergency to-go bag because if something happens unexpectedly, you're ready. And so I didn't do it. And I don't know why I didn't do it because my wife was two weeks past her delivery date. So not only was I not prepared on that day, two weeks later, I'm actually at this point thinking, this baby ain't ever coming. Like it's just, she's put on a lot of weight. I don't know why. This ba- it's not a baby. I don't know what's going on. We're not getting a baby. Forgive me, Heidi, this or that. Um, so anyway, but so, so then one night, Heidi's at a, at a Bible study. I get this phone call. It's a friend of hers. And she says, hey, you're going to have a baby. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. Like, I've, you know, I've been around the past nine months. I've seen the changes, okay? I'm not that clueless. She goes, no, no, no. You're going to have a baby, like, now. 
Heidi is in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. You need to go and meet her there. Click. My mind went blank. I completely, I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do? Oh, am I supposed to bring stuff? What am I supposed, I don't know. And so I'm frantically running around the house. Literally, like, my brain is so shot and fried. I'm so, like, panicked and overwhelmed at this moment. I could have brought a, a carton of eggs to the hospital and thought I did the right thing. Like, Here we go, I brought the eggs. You know, like, I was so messed up. I'm running around. And finally, I open a closet door. There's a bag packed that my wife, my ever-prepared, amazing, awesome wife, packed for both of us. Had her stuff and my stuff ready to go, and I was able to grab it and go out the door. She bailed me out big time. But what was I doing? I had all the time in the world. I knew a baby was coming. We already passed the due date, and I still wasn't prepared. That's the lesson that Jesus is ultimately trying to convey in this passage. The foolish turn to the wise ones, and they say, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out, but the wise can only respond, no. There may not be enough for both us and you. Go get your own oil. You see, olive oil was readily accessible at this time, even probably in the middle of the night. There's nothing that indicates that the wise virgins here were untruthful. They were telling them to go do something which was quite possible that they could do. Go and get more oil. So this parable in no way praises like greediness or selfishness in any way. The point of this statement is for all of us to know and understand that upon the arrival of the bridegroom at the return of Christ, you must have your own oil. You can't get in on borrowed faith. At the time when Jesus comes back, you can't claim the faith of your parents, of your spouse, your friends, your neighbor, your small group. You can't say, I go to Christ Church. I know Pastor Craig or I'm friends with Pastor John. In that moment, it'll be your personal relationship with Jesus Christ confirmed by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that gains entrance into the kingdom. It's a sobering reality. As we said, it's a warning. So the parable finishes. It says, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. You see, the bridegroom arrived, and the wise were welcomed in, but the door was shut. Now, again, I don't say this to, to scare you. In fact, I would rather not say this at all. This is a hard teaching. But the Bible, Jesus is the one who's saying it. This is a warning for all of us. There will be a time, get this, there will be a time when there is no more time. If that doesn't wake you up a little bit, if you're one of those ones who are sitting there and have not confessed and know Jesus as Lord and Savior, there will be a time. Now this, again, this sounds harsh. How could this be coming out of the, the gracious and loving and, and patient God that we all know? But the truth is, to the, the audience listening to this, to the Jewish audience, this would have immediately have rung true. They would have remembered the story of the great flood. Because when Jesus says the door was shut, in Genesis with the great flood, when, when God tells Noah, you've got to build an ark, and I'm going to send a flood on the earth. And when, when, Noah told, when God told Noah and his family to get in the ark, it was God who shut them in. The door was sealed. And when the rain starts coming, 
You're not telling me that there's people outside saying, let us in. Let us in. You are only, and at that point, Noah could do nothing. God brought judgment upon all mankind, saving only eight. There is a time when there won't be any more time. It's a sobering thing for all of us. Now, Jesus, when he says keep watch, he is not saying that we need to be staring up at the sky all day anticipating him. That's not at all what this means. In fact, I think it means quite the opposite. You see, when Jesus actually ascended, all the disciples were sitting there. They said they were looking intently up at the sky. They thought he's going to go up, he's going to gather up all the angels, and he's going to come back down and kick some butt. Like, that's what was going to happen. He was going to bring the kingdom. So they're, they're like, let's go. Here we go. It's going to happen. And it says two angels show up. And these two angels say, men of Galilee, why are you looking intently up into the sky? Yes, this Jesus who has, who has left is going to return in the same way. Ultimately, they're saying, hey, yeah, he's going to come back. But don't look up. Look out. In the meantime, until it happens, you have work to do. Get busy about what he told you to do. Go out. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Complete the work that you have been told to do. That's what he's ultimately saying here. Keeping watch, by definition, it means to stay vigilant, to remain spiritually awake, be active. It's not about looking. It's about our spiritual condition to be vigilant in our growth and in our faith. So what does all of this mean to us today? How can we be prepared and remain watchful? Being prepared and watchful is about being and doing the will of God. Being and doing the will of God. First, in being, we must understand God's will for mankind. God's will, is a desire, is that you are saved. That you recognize and repent your sins and confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that yet, that is his desire. That is his will for you, to be saved in Christ. But if you have, that's not where it ends. That's the beginning. From there, God's will is very clear. His, his desire, His will is that you are sanctified, which means that you are set apart. You're growing in holiness. You're growing in your pursuit of Him. Second Peter says that as we look forward to this day, we ought to live holy and godly lives. We ought to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. peace. God's desire is that we are on this path of righteousness, growing in our love and affection for our Savior. That means time in the Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship among believers, more and more reflecting the image and the character of Christ. His desire is that that, that anointing power of the Holy Spirit would, would embrace you and that you begin to pr- produce fruit, that fruit of good works, the fruit of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is his desire that you are being in the will of God. But being prepared and watchful is also about doing the will of God. Now, I'm not talking about working for salvation. It can't be earned. We know that. It is a free gift. We don't work for salvation. We work from it. Because I have been saved out of the gratitude of what Christ has done for me, now I want to go out and to do work of the kingdom. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. And we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ to do good works. There's all these things that that's what we're created to do. And Jesus is very clear. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is a fool, is the moros. That is what it's all about, being there and then going out and doing, preaching the gospel, making disciples. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. And when asked, he says, who are my mother, my sister, my brothers, those who do the will of my Father? What is that? Well, later on, he says, whenever you feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, invite in the stranger, clothe the needy, look after the sick, visit the imprisoned. You have done these things as unto me. You have cared for those whom I love. Go now, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is our great hope. So God's saying, you're going to love God, you're going to love others. These are the great commandments. But the Bible also says, take a look at yourself. Examine yourself to see if you indeed are in the faith. Take an honest look. Are you growing in your walk with God? Does your life produce fruit in the kingdom? Would you consider yourself spiritually alive or dead? There's the phrase, fake it till you make it. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in the kingdom. Because on that day, God knows the hearts and the motives and the intentions of every man. And so God's desire is that you first come to saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit, that oil may dwell within you. At the time of the kingdom, those who have it and those who don't. Who are you? Who will you be? In closing, as I prepared for this sermon, I read a little bit more about the history of that campground that I grew up attending. And I also found a short eulogy that was written about my great-grandfather. His name was Milton Colby Burt. Now, Milton was an author, and he was a reverend within that same Advent Christian denomination. He died in 1938. Well, the opening phrase of the eulogy says this. It says, In the departure from this life of Reverend Milton C. Burt, the denomination has lost its leading writer on prophetic themes, as well as an able evangelist and a pastor. Those words hit me, the able evangelist and a pastor. One who is faithful in preaching the word and is also faithful in shepherding people. One who loved God and also loved others. One who is being in the will of God. One who is doing the will of God. One who was ready and prepared for that second coming, whenever it might be. I pray the same can be said of me. I pray the same can be said of you. Because Jesus is coming back. It's a historical fact. And the question for all of us is, will we, will we be ready? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your truth today, we know this is a hard teaching. For some of us, it should be a joyful expectation as we await for that glorious appearing that you will have. But God, our, our, our church and our nation and us as a people have drifted so far from that. God, I pray you would turn our hearts back to you. We'd be awake. We'd be vigilant, God, in the work of the kingdom. To be in Christ, growing in holiness and purity and truth, but also doing the work of the kingdom. God, we know that your delay is by design, and we thank you for your patience. Pray, God, that we would be found faithful, drawing all into that loving relationship with you, preaching the word, building disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.